The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. And so she ran to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and I don't know where they've put him. And so Simon Peter and the other disciple start for the tomb. They're running, and the other disciple gets there first. He does not go in, but he stoops down and looks into the tomb and sees the strips of linen lying there. Now Simon Peter arrives and goes straight into the tomb. He sees the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' face, folded up by itself to the side. Now the other disciple who got there first went in. He saw and he believed. You see, they didn't yet understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So the disciples returned to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped over and looked into the tomb and saw two angels dressed in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said, they've taken my Lord out of the tomb, and I don't know where they've put him. She turns and sees Jesus standing next to her, but she doesn't recognize that it's Jesus. And he says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom is it you're looking for? And she, thinking he's the gardener, says, sir, if you've taken the body away, tell me where you've put him, and I will go and get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And he said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and your God. And so Mary came to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and told them all that he had said to her. Well, that night they were together, the twelve and the disciples behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. And Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, he said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. And then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of another, they are forgiven. But if you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, Thomas called the twin, was not with the twelve when Jesus appeared to them. And so the disciples went to him with the news, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas said, unless I see the nail prints and put my finger where those nails were, unless I reach out my hand and put it into his side, I will never believe. Well, eight days later, the disciples were together. Thomas was with them. Again, they were behind locked doors, and Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then to Thomas, he said, See my hands? Put your finger here. Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said, Thomas, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You see, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples that are not recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you would have life in his name. 
This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let us pray. Father, we believe that you inspired your servant John to record these words, this moment, the moment of the resurrection. We believe these words not only had power in the day they were written, but these words have power today because they're inspired by your Holy Spirit. And so we pray, come Holy Spirit, open these words for us, perhaps as never before, that we would be changed more and more to be like Christ Jesus. For we pray it in the risen Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. Do you believe in the resurrection? I know it's a strange question to ask on an Easter Sunday. I mean, here we are. But I need to ask, do you believe in the resurrection? Because we live in a world with increasing doubts, increasing confusion. We live in a world where we cannot expect that everyone even knows exactly what the Easter story is. It's like the Sunday school teacher that's with a group of her students. And she says, so what is Easter about? And the one kid puts his hand up and he says, Easter is about candy and costumes. And she says, no, that's Halloween. And the other kid puts his hand up and says, Easter is about fireworks and flags. And she says, no, that's Independence Day. Finally, a third child puts their hand up and says, Easter is when Jesus died and was buried. And the teacher got a smile on her face. But the child continued. And every Easter, he comes out of the grave. And if he sees his shadow, we have six more weeks of winter. Do you believe in the resurrection? Do we know what the resurrection is? See, the story of the resurrection, the story of Easter is that a man named Jesus of Nazareth, who the church affirms was the son of God in the flesh, lived among us, died a death on our behalf on Good Friday, and then on Easter was raised from the dead, appeared to his disciples, and lives today. And the church affirms For 2,000 years, that by these events on Good Friday and Easter morning, he has won salvation for us. This is a difficult thing for modern minds to grapple with. We live in a world increasingly with rationality at the front. We think of doubting Thomas, right? He sounds almost like a modern man. Unless I see the nail prints and put my finger where those nails were, unless I reach out my hand and put it aside, I will never Believe. Seeing is believing. Give me empirical evidence or I won't go down this faith journey. Bertrand Russell, the famous atheist, was once asked, what will you do if your atheism is proved wrong, that when you die, you stand before God at judgment? And Bertrand Russell's response is, I will say this to God, not enough evidence, God, not enough evidence. See, the problem is, Even if evidence is offered, see, Thomas gets the evidence. Thomas asks for it. Verse 27, Jesus makes a special appearance. Put your fingers here. And and Thomas's result in verse 28 is faith. My Lord and my God. But then Jesus turns things on their head. And he says, in verse 29 of John 20, he says, have you believed, Thomas, because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen And yet, believe. See, what Jesus is saying is that Thomas is not the blessed one because he had that special moment to see Jesus. 
You can use Google, you can search right now and, and see that there is nowhere in the world a church that is called St. Thomas the Blessed. Google it, not right now, sir. Um, <laughs> he's not the blessed. Jesus says those who have not seen and yet believe are the blessed ones because this is the means by which faith comes. As Paul says in Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of God. You see, God has made it so that this story, the story of the resurrection, is the means by which a person can believe. It will not be us holding on to our Thomas-like requirements that unless you show up and give me enough empirical evidence, oh God, I will never believe. Because if that's the case, it will be too late. God has made the Easter story, the story of the resurrection, the roots to belief. As we hear and we grapple with the story, that's where faith comes from. See, in verse 30, John ends this chapter by saying, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you would have life in his name. It is through this account, through the written account of the resurrection, that faith is formed. God has made it that way. And here's what's amazing. As we look at this story of the resurrection, this account of the resurrection we find that this story of the resurrection is a corroborated story, okay? It's not a check your brain at the door story. This is not about saying, well, it's some myth from long ago. No, this is an eyewitness account that has great evidence around it. But not only is it corroborated because that's not enough. This story of the resurrection convicts hearts. It's convicting. It grabs a hold of us. Right? As we hear the story of the resurrection, as we hear the story of Jesus, it will grab a hold of the hearer's heart. But not only is it a corroborated story, and only, not only is this resurrection story a convicting story, but ultimately this resurrection story is a catalytic story that will change the hearer. You will hear this story and be transformed, and through your transformation, the world will be changed around you. See, first, this resurrection story is corroborated. Verse 31 says that these are written that you may believe. Well, what's written? Well, this eyewitness account. These records of the eyewitnesses written for us. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are giving us eyewitness accounts. Matthew and John are writing their own eyewitness accounts of what they saw. Mark is recording the eyewitness account of Peter, and Luke has gone and interviewed all kinds of witnesses that saw the resurrected Jesus. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter says these words to us. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Eyewitnesses. See, what Peter is pointing to is that this account that we read, that we just heard a moment ago, that this is part of a greater account, a set of accounts of eyewitnesses that saw this event take place. Now, you can read Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict. You can read Lee Strobel's Case for Christ. You can read Tim Keller's Reason for God. But regardless of where you go to search about the veracity historically of this account, you will find that because of the number of manuscripts 
that hold to these eyewitness accounts that are existing today. And because of the early dating of those manuscripts, no joke, the resurrection account, the eyewitness account of Jesus is the most historically documented event in the first thousand years of Western civilization. You may not believe that it really happened, but what you can't disbelieve is that there's not this enormous evidence of manuscript evidence, evidential eyewitness that says this happened. There are 500 people that saw Jesus raised from the dead and they were recorded in these manuscripts and we have them today before us. See, when I was an, an atheist, a friend of mine suggested the same thing to me. He said, have you considered the amount of manuscript evidence showing these eyewitness accounts? And I said, yeah, but what if, I thought I had the big zinger as an atheist. I said, what if they just made it up? What if the disciples together had a great conspiracy and just invented the whole thing? And obviously he'd been reading some Josh McDowell when I asked that because he instantly responded and said, well, that's very interesting you say that, Paul, but do you know that of those 500 witnesses that saw the resurrected Jesus, most of them went to a painful, agonizing death because they would not recant that they had seen the Lord Jesus either before the Sanhedrin or the Roman authorities. Do you realize that they went to death holding on to what you would suggest might have been just a simple lie that they made up? Now, it didn't convince me. It didn't convert me. But man, that put a rock in my shoe for the next year that I could not get out. See, these eyewitness accounts of the resurrection, these are corroborated accounts. But it's not enough to have a corroborated account. Thanks be to God, John tells us that this story of the resurrection is convicting. See, it's, enough to, it's not enough to give you evidence. It's a story that must grab your heart. And the story does grab our hearts. Verse 31 goes on to say that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. See, the center of this story, this resurrection story, is a person named Jesus. And his life convicts us like no other life. We watched Notre Dame burn this week, right? And what were we weeping over? Over 800 years of history? Sure, partly. But we were weeping at a deeper level because Notre Dame and cathedrals like Notre Dame are architectural statements to the world that say, look at how this man, Jesus' life, has convicted a whole world. The story in the life of Jesus convicts us. As Matthew Paris, who's an atheist, by the way, writes this about Jesus. He says, I've got such huge respect for Jesus because his life was so radical it was so inconvenient. And then this atheist, Matthew Paris, says this. He said, if Jesus had not existed, the church most certainly would not have invented him. His life convicts us because as we read the accounts of Jesus, he is a man of holiness and a man of humility, a man of love and a man of service and wisdom. And when we look at his life, what happens is if we compare our own lives, is we're immediately aware of how much we fall short in comparison with his life. We're immediately aware of our sin and brokenness and the messiness of our lives in comparison with this life. He convicts us. We know when we look at the life of Jesus that we are broken. 
One of the greatest gifts the Dallas Stars gave to me this Easter is they won game five yesterday. <laughs> I know none of you care, but I do. And, uh, and it just reminds me, I was at a hockey game uh, not long ago, um, before the playoffs, and there was a guy sitting next to me, and uh, you know we chatted, and I didn't know him, he didn't know me, after two periods of watching hockey and yelling at the referees and the rest, and finally he says to me, he says, okay, tell me, so you're Canadian, and you moved to Texas for a job. And I said, yeah. He goes, what job? And I said, do you really want to know? Because this is the point in the conversation that either makes the conversation get really interesting or ends the conversation normally. And I said, I said, I said, I said you really want to know? He said, what? He said, is it bad? Are you like a drug dealer or something? I said, no, much worse. I'm a priest. And then he said to me, you have ruined my nights. <laughs> See, when we come up against Christianity and the life of Jesus, we are convicted because we know as we look at his life that it grabs us like no other life. And here's what's most convicting about his life. What's most convicting about his life in this resurrection story is his sacrifice for us. See, that evening of the resurrection, when Jesus stands before the disciples, what's the first word he says to them? He says, peace be with you. And then he shows them his hands and his side. He shows them the wounds of crucifixion. And in that moment, the church comes to understand what he's saying is you don't have to be afraid anymore. You don't have to worry anymore about your you know, incompatibility before God, about your sin and your brokenness and your fear of death because I have gone to the place you should have gone. I have gone to death on your behalf. See the wounds? And because I've gone there for you, you now have peace with God. The church that night begins to understand what those eyewitness accounts of his crucifixion on Good Friday meant when in Matthew 27, he's recorded as crying out in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The church comes to understand that what Jesus is crying out there about being forsaken by God is in fact absolutely true. That is Jesus, the Son of God, the perfect, sinless, spotless Son of God, is hanging there on the cross, bearing your sins and my sins. That in that moment, he became a horror. He became a sinner, a, wick, a, a man that had sin and wickedness, not his own, but ours placed on him. And all of a sudden, God, his father, the eternal father and the eternal son, unbroken communion for eternity. In that moment, when the son of God took your sin and mine, he became a horror before his father and his father turned his face away. Jesus knew abandonment from his eternal father because he became like us in that moment so that we might become like him. He was bearing our sins so that we could be forgiven. See, when Peter tells this story on the day of Pentecost to the crowd gathered, we're told that they're cut to the heart. Like they hear this story and they're like, what must we do to be saved? This is what this man's life does to it. It convicts us. It grabs us. It's like Joy Davidman, the published author. She was 30 years old well-established in her publishing life, a respected intellectual atheist. But in 1945, one night, 
her husband called and told her that he wasn't coming home anymore. And Joy Davidman writes that as she walked into the nursery where her babies slept, her words, for the first time, my pride was forced to admit that I was not, after all, the master of my fate. All my defenses, she says, all the walls of arrogance and cocksureness and self-love behind which I had hid from God went down momentarily and God came in. And then she writes this, she says, there are no words, there are no comparisons. Those who have known God will understand me. There was somehow a person with me in that nursery directly present to my consciousness, a person so real that all my previous life was by comparison a mere shadow play. And then she says, my perception of God lasted only about half a minute. And after that, she went on a journey, Joy Davidman, to find out who that God was that met her in that room. And she read all kinds of books on spirituality and religion and finally ended up reading three books by C.S. Lewis. She read Mere Christianity, she read The Great Divorce and The Screwtape Letters, and that was enough to convince her to read the Bible. And as Joy Davidman began reading the Gospels, and when she came to the Easter story, the resurrection story, she writes that she was cut to the heart because she finally knew who it was who had met her in that nursery that night. She writes, he was Jesus. Interestingly, Joy Davidman goes on to marry C.S. Lewis a few years later. See, this story convicts our hearts. It's not just that it's a corroborated story of the resurrection. It's a convicting story that grabs the hearer. But not only corroborated and not just convicting, this Easter story, this resurrection story is catalytic. It will change you and it will change me. It will change the hearers. It will come in and radically transform who we are. See, if it's true that Jesus did rise from the dead and is alive today, that is the greatest game changer in the history of the world. Nothing will be able to stay the same in my life or your life if this is true. See, verse 31, again, John goes on to say that you may believe And by believing, you may have life in his name. The the promise here is life. And now in the one sense, obviously it's Easter morning. We're talking about the hope of life after death, eternal life, right? As, As 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sin, is your sting? Thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? We find in the Easter morning that death no longer has dominion over us. We have a life to come. We're actually starting next week an Easter sermon series called We Believe in the Resurrection, which is looking at what does that resurrected future look like according to Scripture. But you see, when John says he wants us to have life as we believe in Jesus, he doesn't just mean life then. He means life right now that our lives now would be radically changed, that this story would have a catalytic effect, not just on my future, but on my present. A fullness of life, a real life, a true life. See, in verse 21, 
Jesus tells the disciples something pretty incredible. He says, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. I mean, listen to that carefully. As the Father has sent me, the Son of God, even so I'm sending you. In the same way I'm sending you. With the same quality of power and strength and meaning that God the Father sent the Son into the world, now the Son of God, risen from the dead, is sending you and me as disciples if we are with him in faith. What that means effectively is we're going to live in the world as Jesus, as little Jesus. That's what Christian means, little Christs. That we will, in fact, have his life living in us to transform the world around us. Christ-likeness is the gift. Thanks be to God in verse 22, he explains how this is going to happen. He breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. It will only be as God the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within the heart of the believer that we can begin living like Christ in this world. You see, the resurrection story is not just corroborated, and it's not just convicting our hearts, but it's catalytic. It changes us, and as it changes us, it will change the world around us. That's what this story does. I was in Rwanda just a few weeks ago, a month ago, and as we were there, we're, we're partnering, as, as, as many of you may know already, we're partnering here at Christchurch with the church in Rwanda to be building preschools, preschools that will be able to care for children that have no access to education and no access to adequate hygiene and nutrition. And we're able to do that partnering with them. And as we were there, a small team of us, we got met at the airport by the Archbishop of Rwanda, and he's, he's driving us to his home. And as the Westerner, I didn't want to you know, make a Western mistake about how you speak, in, speak about things. I said, I said, Archbishop, I'm just going to ask you now in the car. I said, can we talk about 1994? Can we talk about the genocide just for a moment? Because I said, I just don't want to say anything incorrect. I said, how, Archbishop, do you handle post-genocide Rwandan church life? How do you deal with the fact that, I mean, do you have like Tutsi churches and Hutu churches, these tribes that were murdering and butchering each, butchering each other in the streets, do you have to divide them? Are there like Tutsi churches, Hutu? What about clergy? Are there like Tutsi clergy only with Tutsi congregants and Hutu clergy only with Hutu? And do you know what the archbishop said? He said, no, no, no. You need to understand that the gospel has transformed the church in Rwanda. We are no longer, because of that gospel truth, we are no longer Tutsi or Hutu, but we are one Rwanda in Christ. After all the potential for vengeance and bloodshed, instead now a unified people, that is Christ-likeness. That is a catalytic life that changes the world. That's what this Easter story does. It transforms us and it transforms the world around us. Do you believe in the resurrection? John says, these are written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you would have life in his name. It's corroborated it's convicting, this story, and it is catalytic on the hearer. You know, when Paul was in Athens preaching about the resurrection, the crowd had three kinds of reactions. Some mocked 
That's okay. I'm, I mocked this for many years. God can still grab a hold of you. Others wanted to hear more. Others like Joy Davidman were kind of on a journey trying to discover what does this mean? But others believed. And for you today, if today is a day when you are believing perhaps for the first time, maybe today the walls came down for you. Or perhaps for you, today is a day of recommitment, of reaffirmation. Maybe you've been away from God for a time. Maybe you've been mad at God for a time. Maybe you think you've been hurt by God for a time. Today may be the day of belief again for you. I would invite you to know the truth that Paul says in Romans chapter 10, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you'd like to pray along with me, I need to recommit to my belief in the resurrection this morning. Let us bow our heads now and pray. Father, I, as I look at the life of Jesus, I'm reminded of just how much my life falls short. And I am sorry and I repent for my sin. Father, I thank you for this story of the resurrection. And Lord, I believe it. I put my trust there in Jesus' death and resurrection as my Savior and Lord. And I afresh ask you to come into my life with the power of the Holy Spirit and help me to live as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Help me live as Christ for the sake of this world. I pray this, trusting in the risen Lord this Easter morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Alleluia, Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Alleluia.